Before we begin, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we just do ask now that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds as we look to your word, that we would learn this morning and be reminded of even some truths we know, even simple truths such as trust and hope, but that when trials and difficulties and the experiences of life come, that those take on greater color for each one of us. And no different as we look forward in time here in Revelation 18, as we see what we know is true from your word, that the wages of sin is death and there is judgment. Sin must be paid for. And if it is not paid for with the blood of the lamb, if it's not paid by the death of Christ and his subsequent resurrection, Lord, then we will suffer just punishment. And so remind us of this just reality of where we are putting our hope and trust, even as we walk out our lives professing to be Christ followers. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at how you can avoid bankruptcy. And no, you're, you're not in the wrong place. This is church this morning, and I won't be giving any lessons or tips on how to handle your finances. Um, I don't know you, if you want to take my tips. Uh, we have far better uh, people in the church even that run businesses that could probably help you. I can give you some basic biblical advice. Um, I don't know that that's the hard part. I think we all know to some degree you need to make more than you spend to be successful. But, you know, we're humans, so that can be even hard. But we want to avoid bankruptcy in life, in business, in every aspect. This idea of everything that you have going from full to empty, from having much to having nothing, zero. That's the idea of bankruptcy. That is, you have to declare bankruptcy because you have absolutely nothing. And so it is with your life. And it's not just, you could almost say, Okay, we're going to look at the idea of physical bankruptcy. And you guys all know chapter 11 and you've seen businesses restructure and all those things. Sure, sure. Chapter 18 is on this economic side of the fall of Babel. But it's not as simple to, to contrast and say, we're just talking about spiritual bankruptcy because there is a wholeness to the scriptures. It isn't just your, your soul because it is your body and your soul that it says will be thrown into hell if you don't turn to Christ. And so sometimes separating those things and saying, well, church is spiritual and the rest of life is physical isn't very helpful because it's missing the wholeness side of things. And although, as I said, I'm not going to be talking necessarily physical things, we are going to be looking here at what describes Babylon and what they put their hope and their trust in. And if you look down here, say, verse 11, when the merchants cry out and they mourn. Why? Because... No one buys their cargo anymore. Those are for real reasons. And you know, kind of down the food chain, it's because if you don't buy their stuff, then they don't make money, then they don't feed their families, they don't feed themselves and all of that. But what it's described is, is very physical. It's cargo of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from precious wood and bronze and iron and marble. Spices like cinnamon and amomen, Incense, perfume, and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, cargo of horses, carriages, and human beings. 
and human lives. It's this idea here that even in a different economy that John is writing in, we still represent wealth somewhat, whether it's a number on a computer screen, whether it's through paper sitting physically somewhere, or real estate. We we communicate wealth with these objects. What makes a diamond valuable? I still remember the four C's when I went to look for a diamond for my wife and thinking, this is wild. Kind of got into it at the time, but you're still going, what makes this valuable as opposed to something else? And of course, it's just this idea of rarity or supply and demand. And so they put value in these things, but it very much is representative of what you put hope and trust in. And they are going to bet the farm that when they side with Babel, and we've seen in chapter 16, 17, 18, when they side with the beast, who of course is sided with the dragon, Satan himself, they're going to bet the farm that they have what it takes to take on God Almighty. And they are going to be absolutely dead wrong. They're going to go up just like Eve thought, maybe if she eats, will she surely die of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Or as we looked at last week in chapter 17, that all this goes back not from just Babylon, but the idea of Babel and that they built the tower. They were going to save themselves. The idea of works righteousness is so core. Can you have life, not just eternal, but just life in general without God is what they are striving for. And the answer is you cannot. God is patient. He is kind. Even now, he says, today is the day of salvation, but there is a time coming where judgment will come swift. And that's what Revelation is looking towards, is the return of Christ in judgment. So I think we all want to have an answer to this question, but I don't want you to think of, maybe if you want just an imagery in your mind, you can think of bankruptcy as a kind of a, an empty vault, if that's helpful. But this is life ruin. This is not just spiritual, but your whole life being ruined and bankrupt and having nothing left. Everything you put your stock worth value in as a person is gone and is absolutely devastated. The picture for me, and this will date me, is the picture of uh, rich uncle penny bags. If anyone knows who that is from the Monopoly game. And even more so, it's from the regular Nintendo. I got to qualify, regular NES for those who care. Uh, video game where I played Monopoly and there's a picture of him, the character from Monopoly with a bonefish in an empty trash can when you lose and you go bankrupt. And that's the picture in my mind of going absolutely bankrupt and losing it all. It's simply the fleshing out of what Jesus said was true in the Gospels. Mark 8, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Most of us would be satisfied with a little, right? Maybe half the world, maybe a quarter of the world. He's using this argument from the greater, that is extreme, the whole world. What if you got it? Really, that's not possible. But what if you could? Not worth it. Because if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul, it is a bad deal. Revelation is going to be and has been all about helping you understand that the church, the seven churches, the church today, that Christ will return. It is inevitable and that his judgment will be just and that it may look like out in the world today that people are getting away with sin. People are getting away with deception. It may even look as if the church or Christians or whatever the label you might think of, people that follow Christ, people that trust the word of God, it might be looking that they're 
are losing, but this is the reminder that they ultimately will win, not because of who they are, but because of who they serve, which is the king. And we need this reminder to get our eyes off the present and get it on to him and what is true, even if it doesn't feel like it today. It gives us perspective. We've seen judgment after judgment after judgment, and I'm kind of excited for next week, I'll be honest, because we're getting close to the return of Christ, and he's going to take and come back and actually execute all of this with vengeance and establish his reign in 19 and chapter 20. But we still have this last chapter, 18, which is still this final judgment on Babel or Babylon. Chapter 17, we saw the picture of Babylon here, of what they are described as. It's somewhat related similarly in verse 18, but kind of the distinction that is often put is that in 17, you see, and I titled it, the fall of false religion. The final false religion that the whole world has gone after has fallen But the Bible really is a fairly earthy book, if that's a way to put it. It's not just pie in the sky and clouds and harps. It's real kings and kingdoms. And so it's not just that they are religiously bankrupt. It is that they are going to be physically, fiscally bankrupt in chapter 18. And so it looks and says, look, they have fallen not just as a religion, but as an empire, as a kingdom. It is fallen Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And so as we look at this, this is the bankruptcy of Babylon. And really at this point, there's a question of whether this is a rebuilt city of Babylon near the Euphrates River, which I tend to think that city will be rebuilt. But by the time you get to 18, it really is a descriptor of everyone. Because this is the whole world now at this point lining up behind the Antichrist, the beast, and following his system. And they're going to find out that was a bad decision, as we'll see here as we come to these verses in chapter 18. But this question of how to avoid bankruptcy, it goes back to what Scripture addresses over and over and over again. And really, money can be representative of this issue of hope and trust. And so the phrase that you see in Scripture is this idea of the love of money. And so I want to look at these first five verses in chapter 18 and look at this lesson. That is, if you want to avoid bankruptcy, and I'm talking complete life ruin, not just spiritual, but physical, you're going to lose it all, then you need to run from the love of money. And money is simply just a really helpful indicator of the heart, what you trust in, what you hope in. And it's representative here by Babylon and the things that they, whether it's the merchants, whether it's the kings here in this chapter, or the captains of the ships, Whatever they put their hope in, it was not the Lord. It was in these physical things. So look with me in verse 1. It's a distinct vision from 17. And after he saw 17, John, after these things in verse 1, says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with glory. So this is very much this picture of, um, and this is another one, it seems like, Similar, at least in Greek, of the same kind. So I would say this is not Christ. This is an angel soul at this point. But it is illumined with not his own glory, but reflective of who he serves. But it's quite the picture. And he cries out with this mighty voice and he declares, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean bird and a prison of every unclean and hateful beast. Repetition. Prisons, unclean. Why? 
Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the power of her sensuality. Again, using all of this imagery to say they are unfaithful. They are attracted to the pleasures of this world. They were tempted and they failed. And another voice from heaven comes out and says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. And for her sins, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. And so we're left with really encouragement there that even in the midst of the whole description of it's the whole world. In fact, the whole world is going to mourn. Yet within that, and there's always been, you could say, this idea of this remnant that is faithful, he's going to call out and say, for those who hear the call, come, follow me, leave the system of Babel. Don't put your trust, your happiness, your, your joy, your satisfaction, your security, your wealth in the beast or his system. Because when you do, you put your trust in Babylon, you put your trust in the beast and you act not like a child of God, but a child of Babel. And Babel, whether it was Genesis 11 or it is Revelation 17 and 18, it is run by the dragon. The opposite of the way of the dragon throughout Revelation is the way of the lamb. Follow the way of the lamb, not the way of the beast. You see the proclaimed judgment here, these first three verses. Isaiah gives this phrase, 21, that is picked up here, this idea of fallen, fallen, not quoted verbatim, but you see even prophesied all the way back by Isaiah the prophet. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one answered and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the graven image of her gods are shattered on the ground. This is one of those areas where my conviction for the idea that there is a future millennium in the position that we hold of premillennialism, because there are certain things promised in the Bible, in the scriptures. There's a prophecy, Isaiah, Babylon is to fall. And if you really to look at the way it falls in Isaiah, it hasn't fallen like that before. Quick and swift, even here, this one hour of falling. And it seems to be that there will come a time where all this is true and all it comes. And it has to happen in the real world, in real life. This promise here of Isaiah 21 comes to fruition. I don't believe it has yet. I don't believe we have any history to show it has. And so I see it as future here. But in 18, verse 2, it is. Isaiah's words, which God gave him, will be Verified that fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Those that follow will fall with it. See the same imagery here of the immorality and the drunkenness of 17. In fact, we're going to see really in 6, if you will, it is, like I said, a separate vision, but similar things, similar imagery. If you look back at 17.6, this idea of the woman drunk, that is Babylon, with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And then the very end of this chapter is going to readdress that as well, that that is one of the things that is clear. Why are they being judged? Because they murdered God's people. And they always have, whether it's the prophets of old or here clearly in this tribulation period, they have gone after God's people. Verse 3, it's absolutely comprehensive. It's this all the nations. 
As I said, it's not some. It seems there are some that are going to be called out, but they're a, they're, they're a small fraction. They're, they're, it's not a nationalistic thing, but it's individuals within that are called out of the temptation to follow Babel. It's a call to God's people, which I find encouragement because I can even look here and see that there is a call. If you look at the phrase that I use, run from the love of money, or it is to say run from Babel, which is described here as ones that put their hope and their trust in We'll see the material, not only material, but that they think they can build. It's that whole idea of whether the Tower of Babel. This is to be the flashing warning light for people reading this, like us today, that this is where the future is headed. Don't follow, don't run, rather run the other way. Come out of her, verse 4, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive it for plague. This is separate from the world. And we could look at passages for the church today in a similar way. We are in the world. We're all here this morning, 2023, but we are not of the world. You're going to have a job. You're going to get paid, but you're still not a citizen of this earth. We are sojourners and aliens, as Peter says. And the people here need this reminder as well. You see God's kindness even here. There's an opportunity to come to him. And there is the call. Don't put your hope and trust in Babel. Put your hope and trust in the lamb, the worthy one, Christ. Be like Moses, as we've seen over and over again in Hebrews, who would rather suffer with God's people than pursue the fleeting riches of Egypt. So run from putting your hope and your trust in the material. And secondly, recognize what you know, which is good theology, which is this, that recognize, number two, that the wages of sin is death. Recognize the wages of sin. I like that language, and I thought of that language as I'm thinking. This is very economic, as we'll see in a moment as you kind of get into it. Um, The wages, the way Paul is using that in Romans chapter 6, is very economic. You get paid a wage— His point is you get paid, the laborer gets paid what he is due. Uh, If you agreed to work for $10 an hour and you work five hours, you get $50. That's how it works. He's saying, what do you get paid if you sin? Because you're going to get paid. The wages of sin is death. I think that's just a helpful imagery of a clear biblical truth. And it's worked itself out here where we understand even in Adam and Eve, the wages of sin is death. Eve takes the fruit and there is spiritual death, but There is a physical death that came into the world and eventually Adam and Eve both died. The wages of sin is death. Even you look at the world today and you go, well, it keeps going on. The globe keeps spinning. Seems like people can get away with things. And no, the wages of sin is death over and over again. But it goes on in Romans 6 to say the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, you first have to kind of look at the bad news and understand what we are owed apart from Christ. If no one else has paid that debt, the wages, debt, the language of, really, you could say it's the imagery of the gospel that is in monetary terms. We owe a debt. Who is going to pay it? Either you're going to pay it or someone else is going to pay it. And the beauty and the good news of the gospel is that Christ pays it. If we put our hope and trust in him, that is not just... um, the fire insurance, but that you really do in your whole being, in your whole life, trust in who he is and what he has done. Look at verse 6 here. 
how does this describe? And this is the long section here. And a lot of it is fairly wordy in that describing, um, which for us may not mean as much, but I feel like we still buy furniture. We, we still understand that precious metals. I, I have a wedding band that is 24 karat gold, right? You know, that, that whole thing. We, we still do have some understanding of this describing value and, and wealth. What are they going to get for putting their hope in this? Well, there's this lesson in verse 6. Pay her back. Remember, this is the angel speaking. He's proclaiming judgment. He's saying, pay her back, the angel says, even as she paid and give her back double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her to the degree that she glorified herself, lived sensuously, that is not glorify the Lord, not serve, but rather selfish. To that same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. That whole idea, what does that phrase mean? It's just arrogance. It's, it's absolute arrogance. I'm independent. It's the whole idea of the sin of Babel. They're independent. I don't need anyone. I don't need God. I don't need saving. So pay her back. Pay her back. Why? Because it is just what is due hers. It's the basic principle in the scriptures of Leviticus 24, verse 19. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so shall it be afflicted on him. Thus the one who strikes down an animal shall make restitution for it, but the one who strikes down a man shall be put to death, which is to say... Yes, it's not good if you go kill your neighbor's dog, but it's not the same as murder. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the phrase that we kind of know from that. And even you can say the punishment fits the crime in our law today, and it's a similar idea. Let's just simply apply it here to Babel. What has she done? Well, she lusted after false gods. She went and said, I can save myself, be independent from God. She murders the saints and lives for herself. Well, the wages of that, which is sinning against God, that is falling short of the mark, therefore you're going to get what is worthy, which is you have offended a perfect and holy and just God and who is eternal, and that punishment can only be met out in equal, which is to say judgment. It describes the judgment here. This ultimately is the idea of law, right? Think of the way Paul describes this multiple places, whether you think of Galatians and things. The law can't save. Whether you think of the Ten Commandments, you think of the rules that are laid down. It's meant to show you that you are a sinner, that you are a law breaker. I appreciate 2 Corinthians 3, the way Paul describes this here, that this whole context really is of the new covenant, which we, even as a church this morning, before me, see the elements of taking the Lord's table. It's the blood that we're to remember was shed to inaugurate the new covenant. Second Corinthians 3 is a whole section about that new covenant. And in light of that, he's saying that new covenant is not based on the letter, which is his way of saying it's not based on good works or law keeping. Rather, he says, starting in verse 1 here of 2 Corinthians, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? 
Simply people who question his, uh, his uh, apostolic authority. He says, we don't need letters from others. You are our letter. So he's actually going to use this term and he's going to carry it through kind of in a neat way to say, you are a letter. Having been written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ ministered to by us, having been written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of hearts of flesh. Basically saying, go grab a mirror, go look at this church. If you want to see the power of the gospel in your own lives, look. And such confidence we have through Christ towards God that not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, which again, we're being reminded of this morning, inaugurated by the death of Christ. But our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Just simply reminding them this idea of when he talks letter, he's speaking of law. You can't save yourself by doing good works and good deeds. Only by looking to Christ. Everyone is born into sin, has a debt that must be paid. Someone's going to pay it. Either we are going to pay it, you are going to pay it, or you're going to have to find someone. And the only one who can is Christ who can pay it for you. And so the recognition here is they're going to have to pay back what they owe the king. Well, guess what? They don't have enough. They just have themselves. So then it's the idea of they're going to be judged justly, and it's going to be this eternal punishment met out, which you can't really avoid as awful and as terrible as it is. We've seen in Revelation, you can't avoid that reality because they have no one else to pay it because they have only looked to themselves. And so they mourn because they realize their bankruptcy. They realize their poverty. Look at verse 8. For this reason, one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. So there's a reason. It's just. They're going to get what they deserve. And they mourn, verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and left sensuously with her will cry and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, woe, woe to the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And that one hour is repeated, which is to say it happens quick and swift and shocking. It all comes to a halt, and all of a sudden everything changes. I feel like over the course of, of history, you, it's hard not to look back to a few years ago with COVID and you know, many comments you can make about COVID, but it is to say everyone has to recognize it was one way before and one way after, whether you liked it or not. It was swift, and you think, I remember I was on an airplane coming back from Shepherd's Conference, and then it was that same week, basically, where you know, airport shut down and we're wondering, should we meet? And it's just to say... You go on thinking life will be the same over and over and over. The next day will be like the next day. The last week will be like uh, the next week will be like the last week. And then until it's not. Same idea. I tell my wife I don't look any older. And she laughs at me. I don't think I look that much older. No. It's, it happens. And it's true. Every once in a while, every birthday. We have three birthdays coming this summer with our boys. You're reminded, oh, I guess if they're 11, if they're 9, if they're 7, if they're 
three, that means I've gotten older too. It's the reality that time goes on and things do change. And we can be tempted to think it won't ever change. It's a warning of Second Peter, but it won't go on and on. And this is the promise from the scriptures that one day the judgment is coming. Which again, for those who are in Christ, actually is exciting because we know what follows. Which is it's not the end, which is it is for Babylon, but it is the beginning for the reign of Christ on this earth in a physical way. In a way that yes, he is the rightful king. Yes, he is in that sense, he is Christ, the king of the church. But he's not reigning from David's throne literally as a one day it will here. And so we look forward to when this happens. We can see with John, we've seen there the bitter hunter, but yet we see the horrendous way that it comes through as it must come through the bitter side of judgment. But the leaders of the world, they continue, not just the kings of the earth, but verse 11, the merchants of the earth. They cry, they mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every article of ivory, every article made from precious Wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, a moment, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, cargo of horses, cargo and, and the carriages, and human beings and human lives. All that they're doing here, all of their business has come to a complete stop. They're not repentant, just like the kings. They're just sad that their business is over. And the fruit, verse 14, you long for has gone from you and all the things that were splendid and shining have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, crying and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one such hour, again, that short period of time, it's coming and it'll be swift. Such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like the great city? So every, not only do you have, you have kind of these groups, the, the, you have the kings and you have the merchants and here you have the shipmasters, the sailors. They stand, the imagery is at a distance watching their life's work, their business, the thing they trusted in, that they hoped in, and it's going up in smoke. I don't know what it would be like to have my house burned down. I, I think in some ways I go, I don't know if it'd be that big of a deal, but I also know and talking to people who've had lost things you can't get back, we're, we're attached to things and it would be devastating in many ways. But this is where everything they hoped for, everything they poured their life into is simply over and gone. It's the wood, hay, and stubble and it just simply burns up and nothing survives Nothing will follow them. And so, verse 19, they throw dust on their heads and were crying and crying and mourning and saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city, which all who have ships to sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. It's reality that the whole system is coming to a complete and utter collapse. Not just the religious side, and it's false religion, but the economic side is coming crumbling down. And we need to be reminded of this reality as you look at Revelation 18, even for the church today, that this is again where it is headed. That's always a lesson from Revelation. This is where the world is going. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe not in the lifetime of our children, but this is where it's going. And it's even promising, you're not gonna expect it. 
the whole idea of Christ. Thief in the night. Swift, one hour. We don't know the day and the hour, but we do know it will come. Not a matter of if, but simply when it will happen. And so we should adjust and live our lives accordingly. The thing that you put your trust and hope in, if it can be taken, you will be devastated. But you think of First Peter, if you put your hope and your trust in Christ, if it's the gospel that we, we look at and that is something that is undefiled, that is incorruptible, that is in heaven, that no one can get at, that will last no matter what trials and tribulations in this life. In other words, the wages for, you could say, the gospel, just looking at it that way, what do you get paid for if you trust in Christ? It is you get the riches of Christ as Ephesians lays out, as Peter lays out in First Peter and so not only I suppose you could say recognize the wages of sin, but recognize the wages of repentance or the wages of the gospel of turning to Christ, what you gain. And so that would be true that if you do lose the world, if everything you built turns into rubble, but you have Christ, then you have enough. Well, thirdly, as you look to this idea of a bankrupt life, you got to put your hope and trust in the right things and Namely, in most of our cases, it simply is described as over and over in the scriptures of running from that love of money. That is that trust of money, putting your hope in it. Understand that the true wages of sitting against God is death. But thirdly, it's this idea of remembering the end in the beginning. I just like this phrase. Couldn't really even find out where it comes from. I just, I guess I say it. I don't know. Someone probably said it and I stole it. I don't know where. That is to say, you have to remember what's going to happen in the end as you begin or the same idea if you're going to start a project that you're going to plan it all the way out and then start back at the beginning. This is where Revelation as a whole is so helpful for Christian living today to remember the end because we're not there. I don't know if we're at the beginning, beginning, right? Who knows how long, but it is to say we're not there yet. And so we're living our lives. And of course, in our cases, each one of us, maybe someone who's recently converted, you just became a believer. Well, you're at the very beginning in that sense. But we have time left. But you have to live and begin and live in light of what is coming in the end. And this is the good news. And this is almost where it turns positive. We're almost there. I like 19. My, my chapter heading of 19 is hallelujah. My, you know, some excitement finally. Hallelujah, salvation, glory, power belong to our God. Well, that rejoicing begins in verse 20 of chapter 18. That rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Again, who's the her? It's Babylon, the woman of chapter 17. Rejoice in her judgment. It seems a little bit twisted, but again, it's rejoice in that God has come to execute just judgment. This is the, the excitement, the rejoicing that we saw early when the deed of the earth, the universe, is given to the worthy one, to the lamb, to Christ. And you're rejoicing because you know what follows, what begins. So rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints, apostles, prophets, the categories even of the church here. Be excited because judgment has come and you know what will follow. Finally, the prayers are going to be answered. We're going to see that in verse 24. But verse 21 says, a strong angel then picked up a stone, just to give you an illustration here. If you're wondering, well, I've seen bad countries fall and come back twice as bad the next time. Maybe this will be something like the original Babylon or maybe like the Tower of Babel and the languages are confused, they're sent out and then it just gets worse. And No, no, this is final 
Because even the picture here of 21, it's final in the way that he picks up a stone. I even love the language. It's a great millstone picked up by a strong angel. So you don't even need to know anything about Greek, anything about millstones. They're just really big and they're really heavy. And it takes not a normal angel, but a strong angel. This is where you go. You're good. English is good for you. It's good. The strong angel picks up the great millstone, throws it into the sea, saying, and so will Babylon. In other words, it's a visual picture. Will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence? This is, my kids love cannonballs, jumping in, you know, the the bigger you are, that's the one place you can be big and, you know, you're better. You may not be the fastest kid, but you can do the biggest cannonball. It's this throwing this massive object where there's a huge explosion of the water, thrown down with violence, fast, hard, and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. Again, this is where I go. This has to be future for me because these things must happen. And they're going to happen swiftly in the hour. And the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Again, this idea of they were believed in thinking they could follow the beast, follow the dragon, and they could defeat God. No. This is the just punishment. What, what, is, what is the just punishment for rebelling against the perfect and holy God? It is this right here. Babylon is a picture of all then who rebel against God. And in her was found the blood of the, pro, the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. It's really a thread you could pull on throughout Revelation. This idea of justice is coming. When I say, you know, someone you get angry and you've been mistreated and you want to have vengeance and you, someone says, well, vengeance is the Lord's. Says, this is what it means. Because vengeance is coming and it's not us who wield it or met it out, but it is we have a Lord who will. He has avenged. Then if you just even jump down to next week, just spoiler alert, 19 verse 2. He has avenged the blood of his slaves shed by her hand. The prayers that were being offered up, that smoke that goes into heaven and uh, earlier... In Revelation, how long, O Lord? And it is to say, it is now. This is where it is coming. This is where it will end. Where Babylon will end, but hallelujah, the reign of Christ will begin. This is a reminder to all of us. There is a system that Satan runs today. It's not quite as comprehensive. It's not quite as global as the one here that everyone falls after in the tribulation period, but it is nonetheless that he is the prince of the power of the air today in charge of that kind of system that is tempting and to say, come out, separate. Even we are called of that as the church, the called out ones. That's the literal definition of the church. But look at this passage and look at chapter 18 as a whole and ask yourself these questions because I think they're, they're worth asking even as we approach the Lord's table of We know these words like trust and hope. But ask yourself what you truly are trusting in, what you truly are hoping in. This idea of do you believe it is safe enough to get on 
the airplane. I know some of you perhaps like flying, and I like flying, whether it's commercial, whether it's small planes. But there's a lot of trust, especially when you get into something that has one engine, that that one engine keeps going. Saying, I'm going to put my life on the line to hope, right? To trust in it. The same idea here. You're going to live in such a way that even if there are consequences, you know that you can trust it to the end. That's what we're called to do with Christ, to trust in what he has done. The world, even if you gain it all, chapter 18 is a lesson. It's not worth it. But rather, following the way of the Lamb is worth it. And it's of eternal worth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we do see these reminders of promises that are made, prophecy that is predicted, that give us confidence, even though we have not yet seen, but we have faith and trust and know that you have been faithful, faithful to send one of a seed of Eve who did crush the serpent's head, who did defeat, who took the curse of death, the sting of death away because we have hope in Christ that we will not only be united in his death and that our sins are paid for, but united in resurrection and life and have life eternal with Christ. But that even as you are patient, as we go forth as your church preaching this good news, this gospel, that one day, even that time will run its course and your patience will end and there will come judgment. Help us remember these things in ways that are vivid, such as we've seen in the passage, the idea of bankruptcy and of just the sheer wealth that is being devastated globally throughout this chapter, that they serve as reminders for each one of us that we have such infinitely more in Christ, in his word. Use those things, Lord, to direct our hearts to the importance of the gospel, of the good news of your Son. The importance of and the need of a Savior that deals with sin, that pays the debt of sin for us. May we be reminded of that as we just even evaluate our own hearts and our own lives as we celebrate together what Christ has done in the past and reminded this morning as well what he will come and do in the future. We just thank you in your son's name. Amen.